So today's Palm Sunday, of course, and that means that today begins what is known as Holy Week or Passion Week. So today's Palm Sunday. This Friday is Good Friday. Of course, Good Friday marks the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus was put to death for the sins of God's people. And then next Sunday is Easter Sunday, which marks the resurrection of Jesus as Jesus, our Savior, triumphed over the very grave. Palm Sunday marks the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem to announce or to declare that he was the true king of Israel, that he was God's appointed and anointed Messiah or deliverer. And Palm Sunday marks the day that the people received him as such. Now, this day is called Palm Sunday because in the Gospel of John, we read that the crowds, as they're in this Uh, this frenzy, so to speak, that they actually had palm branches that they waved at the Messiah and that they also laid on the road that Jesus passed on. Now, at this point in the career of Jesus, where we're at here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus has been publicly ministering in Israel for approximately three years. He's been to Jerusalem before. He's ministered in the surrounding areas of Judea. And especially, he's ministered a lot up north in a place called Galilee. Jesus has become very popular. Jesus is popular as a teacher or a rabbi. The crowds have loved listening to his teaching. They even commented that Jesus' teaching was not like the scribes or the Pharisees, but rather his teaching seemed like it had an authority that came from God himself. And crowds were mesmerized by this famous rabbi or teacher. But not only that, the crowds were drawn in because Jesus was known as a miracle worker. Jesus had performed so many different miracles and news had spread and people in towns and villages would gather the sick when this rabbi would come into town so that maybe their loved one could be touched by him. He would heal people. He famously fed people with a couple of fish and a little bit of bread in the wilderness, thousands and thousands of people. He calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He was even rumored to have raised the dead. And so at this point in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry, many people all over Israel regarded him as a mighty prophet of God. And not only that, but a growing number of people had their suspicions that maybe, just maybe, this could be the son of David. Maybe this man is not just a mighty prophet. Maybe this is the prophet, the one that God would send into the world to rescue the people of God, reestablish David's kingdom, and expand its rule over all the earth. We see this, for example, over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. In that passage, Jesus, he heals a man who is oppressed by demons, and this man is also blind and he's mute. And after the people witnessed that, here's what they say in Matthew 12, 23. It says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Not just a son of David, like maybe this is another king in the line. They said the son of David. There was an expectation in Israel that there would come one from the line of David who would be the son of David. This would be God's Messiah who would rescue the people of God. And people are wondering, 
could this Jesus of Nazareth be the son of David? We can sense just how popular Jesus had become at this point in his ministry by the words of his greatest opponents, the Pharisees who were religious leaders in Israel. In John's version of Palm Sunday, we read this in John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Jesus is growing in popularity. The world has gone after him. The whole nation is buzzing about this man. And now, in the text that Lisa read for us this morning, things have reached a fever pitch. And the people are looking at Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday. Now, ever since chapter 9, verse 51 in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem for this moment. Here's what we read in Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up or to ascend to heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So in Luke's telling of the life of Jesus, chapter 9, verse 51 is a big turning point. Jesus now has set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he's making his way there. And all of the chapters between Luke 9.51 and now Luke 19.28 are covering a bunch of teaching that Jesus is doing on his journey to Jerusalem. Now, in Luke 19, Jesus has arrived at the outskirts of the holy city. Bethphage and Bethany, which we read about here in our text, are villages that are right outside of Jerusalem. The mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, is just across a very modest valley called the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is there now. And it's so interesting because after traveling all this way to Jerusalem on foot, here he is on the outskirts of the city, and he decides that he's going to make the final leg of the trip, really just the entrance into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, why would Jesus choose to come on the back of a donkey? Well, it's very, very significant. Let's read about his decision here in verse 30. Jesus tells the disciples, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, can you imagine getting that assignment from Jesus? You guys are hanging out at the Mount of Olives. And the Lord looks at you, maybe two disciples, and he says, hey, you guys, come here. I want you to just go on into the city and find a donkey. And find a donkey that has a colt, a baby donkey with her, a young donkey, rather, with it. And when you find him, just walk up and untie him and bring him back to me. Like, it almost sounds like Jesus is, like, saying, just go steal a couple donkeys. And the disciples hear that, and they're like, wait, what do you want us to do? And Jesus is like, just go in and untie the donkeys and bring them in. And if anybody says anything to you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. Like, as if that's supposed to work. So imagine being the disciples, and you walk in there, and you're like, you see the owners, and they're sitting there, and they're chatting, and you're like, is, is this the time? Okay, hold on. They're not looking. They're not looking. Hurry, untie, untie, untie. And you start walking away, and it happens just like Jesus said. They go, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? And the disciples turn around, and they're like, they have to do a Jedi mind trick. The Lord has need of them. <laughs> and the owners are like, 
the Lord has need of them. Okay, have a great day. And they walk off and take these donkeys back to Jesus. It works out. But why would Jesus choose these animals? Why would he even need to do this? Why didn't he just walk into Jerusalem? Well, the selection of this animal is intentional and it's deeply significant. In order to understand why he would do this, we have to know a key from the Old Testament. And that key is found in Zechariah 9.9. Now, Zechariah 9 is a prophetic text that talks about the future king that God is going to send to his people. And this king who will come is going to usher in the full restoration of God's kingdom. Many Jews at this time understood Zechariah 9.9 to be talking about this son of David, the Messiah, who would come to Israel. And what we find in Zechariah 9.9 is that this coming king, who will usher in the restoration of God's people and kingdom, he is going to come into the holy city, not on a war horse. He's going to come on the back of a donkey. And a young donkey at that. Here's Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, what is happening on Palm Sunday in Luke 19? Is that Jesus in selecting this donkey to ride into Jerusalem on, Jesus is actually stepping into the prophetic hopes of the people of God. And he's saying, I am the promised king. And guess what? The people receive him as king. How do we know this? Well, first of all, we know this because they say as much in verse 38. Look at Luke 19.38. The people say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, they're receiving him as their king, who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the, the king that the Lord has sent to us to represent him. But we see this not only in what they said, we also see that they received this king by what they did throwing their cloaks on the floor and waving palm branches to Jesus. Now, putting your coat down on the floor for somebody to walk over is at the very least a way of honoring that person, showing that they're really significant and they matter to you. For example, I'm going to have to go back like 100 years in history for this example, but think of a gentleman 100 years ago who's maybe out with a lady and they're walking and there's water, there's a puddle on the floor or some mud. Maybe this is only in the movies. Somebody has to verify if this ever really happened. But the gentleman would actually take off his coat and he'd lay it down and then he'd escort her over the puddle or over the mud. Why? So that her beautiful feet and shoes don't get muddy. That's definitely a way of saying, I honor you. I respect you. I am putting you up on a pedestal. But listen... When a multitude of people take off their coats and they lay them down on the floor for a man to walk on, especially as he's entering into the capital city, it is saying something more. Not just that we honor this is a this is a sign of royal homage. 
It's a way of saying all of us, this whole multitude here in this city, this capital city, we are underneath you. We are submitted under you and we are under your rule. You're our king. You're the authority. We are your subjects. In the Old Testament, we see a great example of this. There's a king in the Old Testament named Jehu. And we read about his story in 2 Kings chapter 9. And when Jehu becomes king, we see something very similar to what is going on with Jesus here. This is 2 Kings 9.13. It says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So when the people of Israel are receiving Jehu as their king, all of them take off their garments and they lay them on the steps so that Jehu can pass over them. And they, again, announce Jehu is king. So the people here are, again, making a statement. Jesus, we see you as our king that has come from the Lord himself. We also see them waving palm branches and laying those down. And we know throughout history that palm branches were used in celebrations of victory. And they were used to receive a victor back to their city. Perhaps the closest thing that we have in our culture is the sort of parades and celebrations that happen in major cities when sports teams win a championship. right? Like the Rams just won the Super Bowl and so L.A. plans a big ceremony And the team gets paraded around through the city streets and people are shouting and yelling and celebrating because our victorious Rams have won the Super Bowl. Well, that's what's going on here. The people are in a frenzy celebrating and receiving their triumphant king. So, I say all of that to say this. The point of this passage is very straightforward. Jesus is announcing himself as that God promised would come to deliver his people. And the people in Israel receive him as such. But this moment in Luke 19 is the breaking point for the Pharisees and for the other religious leaders. I already read to you their response from John's gospel in John 12, 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You can sense there the jealousy that they have. All the people that used to look to us as the religious leaders and the authorities, they're all going after this man, Jesus, now. But even here in our text, notice how they try to stop what is happening. Luke 19, 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So these Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, Hey, Rabbi, Rebuke your disciples. Get them to stop because they're announcing him as king. And this is so instructive for us even here today. Because there are many people, even many of Jesus' strongest opponents today, who can tolerate Jesus up to certain points. For example, many people can tolerate Jesus as a good teacher. Hey, if Jesus, if we just want to take some of his teaching, that's okay. Jesus is a good teacher. Who doesn't like expressions like, turn the other cheek? Or love your enemy? Or it's more blessed to give than receive? Or do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself? If we want to borrow a couple ideas from this teacher 2,000 years ago, we're okay with that. 
We can tolerate that. Many people today, even many of Jesus' strongest opponents, can tolerate Jesus as a catalyst for helping the less fortunate, like helping the poor, or feeding the hungry, or tending to the sick, or caring for those in prison. And so if Jesus motivates some people to go and care for those who are less fortunate, we're all good with that. That's okay. You can use Jesus in that way. Or they can tolerate Jesus as a helpful therapist or psychologist. If Jesus helps to give you peace of mind, if he helps lower your anxiety levels with some of his teaching about, you know, hey, uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of his own. If, if that stuff's helpful to you and it brings peace of mind to you, awesome. It's okay for Jesus to do that for you. But what about Jesus as king? And I'm not talking about just a king in some vague or remote sense like that. But, but what about a Jesus who actually has authority over you? What about a Jesus who actually has a claim on your life? This is what the Pharisees were resistant to. They could tolerate Jesus throughout his earthly ministry for three years. Being a teacher, doing a lot of good things around Israel. Yes, they were frustrated by it, but they could tolerate it. But now Jesus comes into Israel and he announces publicly and is received publicly as the king of God's people. And if this was true, and Jesus really was God's anointed one, truly the king to come, then even the Pharisees knew that they would have to submit to his rule. And that was too much for them. They liked being in control. They liked being in positions of power. They liked the authority that they exercised over the common people. And Jesus was a threat to all of that. And so the Pharisees, threatened by Jesus, demand something of him. In verse 39, they demand that Jesus remain relegated to something lesser than the true king. But family, listen to Jesus' response to those who want to minimize who he is. Verse 40. I tell you, Jesus says, if these, referring to his disciples, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, can't stop, won't stop. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying it is inevitable that I be acknowledged for who I actually am. You can silence, I could silence, I could tell my disciples right now, stop it. Don't say this about me anymore. But even if I were to do that, the very stones of the earth would break forth in praise right now. Because this is my moment. This is what I was sent for. And nothing will stop me from being received and acknowledged for who I actually am. I am the king that God has sent for his people. And so the Pharisees could choose to live in denial about who Jesus truly is, but that could do nothing to prevent him from receiving the honor and the glory that was due to his name. In Psalm 46, verse 10, we read of a God who will be exalted, not who might, not who hopefully will be received for who he is, but a God who will be exalted throughout the earth. Here's Psalm 46.10. It 
It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's inevitable. If God is who the Bible says God is, the creator and sustainer of everything, the one who gives all of us breath and life, then obviously he will make sure that glory and honor and praise go where it's deserving, which is back to him. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul famously puts it in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Family, this is huge. What that means, if that's true, is that every man, woman, and child, every principality and power, whether here on earth or in the heavenly realm, will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Will acknowledge that he is, in fact, the true king of the universe. But here's the kicker. And here's the thing that we have to grasp today for this sermon to be remotely helpful to anyone. The blessings that King Jesus offers to his people are only available to those who receive him as king now. Again, the blessings that King Jesus offers to his people are only available to those who receive him as king now. What are those blessings? Oh, there are too many to list. But let me just give you a sample. How about this? Forgiveness of your sins. What are sins? Sins are every single thing that we've done throughout our life that are not in alignment with God's perfect will for the way that we should live our lives. It's every hateful thought that we've harbored in our hearts. It's every wrong word that we've spoken to another person that cut that person down, that beautiful, precious person created in the image of God. And we've not taken that seriously and we've slandered them or we've hurt them with our words. It's every time we've manipulated or we've cheated somebody or we've stolen something. It's every time that we operated in selfishness rather than selfless love. I could go on and on, but every single time we've done that, we have sinned. And we have violated God's commands and God's design for human flourishing in this human community. And many of us, because of our sin, we live our lives with guilt and shame. And that's the way that you feel when you do the wrong things. And yet Jesus came to liberate us from all of that. 2,000 years ago when Jesus came right after this triumphal entry, they nailed him to a cross. And even that was part of God's plan. Because on the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that you and I who receive him by faith can become the righteousness of God. What a blessing that you literally could have every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, wiped away as if it never happened. Completely forgiven because Jesus bore the penalty for your sin so you don't have to. What a blessing. What about this idea, reconciliation with God? We live in a spiritual age where people want to know God. They want to have contact with the divine or with supernatural aspects of the universe. And guess what? 
That longing inside of us is because we do have a creator. But our sin that I was just talking about has alienated us from a relationship with God. The very God who created us and knows us and loves us. And Jesus came to fix that broken relationship. To reconcile us back to God so that we can have access to the God who made us. And so that God would not just be a creator or a judge, but that he would actually become your father. And a very good one at that. What about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Jesus offers to all of his followers the presence of God the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that every single person who confesses Jesus as Lord is filled with the Holy Spirit of God right in that moment. And the Holy Spirit serves as your counselor, as your comfort, and as the agent for change in your life. He's there to counsel you. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into the truth and shows us how to live our lives. He's there to comfort us through every hardship, every difficulty, every suffering that we go through on this earth. The Holy Spirit is there as a present comfort. And he's there as an agent for change. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually transforms us into the image of Christ. He makes us into the people that God designed us to be and that deep down we all ultimately desire to be. The gift of the Holy Spirit. What about this blessing? A new family to belong to. I love that God doesn't save us in isolation. So all of a sudden we're Christians now and we have a relationship with God and we've just got to go all like Rambo with it. Just go at it alone, me and God. When God saves us, God brings us into a family. And if you look around this room, this is part of what that family looks like. He gives us brothers and sisters in the faith. People who are there to love us and pray for us and support us in hardship and in difficulty. It's a beautiful blessing that Jesus gives to his people. What about victory over death? Because of what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says that he is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning he's just the first one. And everybody who puts their faith in Jesus, because Jesus conquered the grave, we will also experience the resurrection. And so even death no longer has a claim over you if Jesus is your king. What about a new resurrected body? Guess what? These bodies are getting worse with every passing day. Even if you go to the gym, guys. Even if you eat right. They're getting worse with every passing day, right? And the older we all get, the more they're breaking down. And all of that is just showing us signs of what it looks like to live in a world that's broken by sin. But for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, and everybody in here above is going to have a big smile on their face right now. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus, there is coming a day when this earthly mortal body is going to be transformed into a resurrected body. No more aches, no more pain, no more exhaustion, no more suffering, no more of the limitations that our earthly bodies are experiencing right now. What about this, the hope of heaven? Being able to experience eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will experience eternal life. Jesus, when he returns, is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness 
and joy and peace get to exist. And what that means is that we will live in eternity free from all of the things that break our hearts right now. We will live in eternity free from all of the things that can bring misery into our lives. Finally, I'll just mention this. What about reunion with loved ones who have died in the Lord before you? I mean, how many of us have loved ones that have already passed on, and yet we know that their faith is in Jesus, and we know that there will be a beautiful reunion and celebration with them in heaven? Family, I could go on, but we've got a barbecue to get to. So I'll stop there. But let me end with one final thought today. I've been saying that Jesus is a king, and he is. But I just need to say this as well, that Jesus is a wonderful king. Because there are plenty of people who have all sorts of twisted and wrong ideas about exactly who Jesus is. I've talked to many people who think that Jesus is harsh and judgmental. Here's the, fa- here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is gentle and he's lowly. We talked about this last week a little bit. Here's Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Jesus invites everyone. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Even in the Zechariah passage that we read, it says this, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So Jesus is no petty tyrant. Jesus is not harsh and bossy. Jesus does not sacrifice his own people so that he can get his own selfish agenda accomplished. No, Jesus is a gentle and lowly king. In John chapter 10, Jesus is revealed as a good shepherd. I mean, think about that. A shepherd cares for their sheep. They nurture them, they feed them, they protect them, they care for them. And Jesus is our good shepherd. And in John 10, it goes even farther and says, He's our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is not like the kings of this earth, who rule with an iron fist, and who domineer over their people, and who use their people to accomplish their own ends. He's an altogether different kind of king. He's a king who actually lays down his life for the good of his people. Jesus is a wonderful king. He seeks the well-being of all of his sheep. And too many people have all the wrong ideas about who Jesus is. Even the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they thought that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to take something away from their life. But what was the truth? Jesus was coming in to actually give them life. Life in abundance. Eternal life. All of the blessings I mentioned a moment ago and so many more. But as I said, these blessings are only for those who accept Jesus for who he truly is here and now. Trusting him as Savior and as Lord of their life and following after him. For those who reject Jesus in the here and now. Just like the Pharisees say, I don't want anything to do with that. I want you to be relegated to something other than the King and Savior that you declared you were. For those who reject Jesus now, they will acknowledge him on that final day. That's what Paul was talking about. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess 
Jesus is Lord. So they will acknowledge him on that day. But at that point, it will be too late to receive any of the blessings that King Jesus offers. So what does it look like for a person to acknowledge Jesus as Lord? First, it's turning to him in prayer and committing yourself to him. It's Jesus, I acknowledge you as the true king. I understand that means that you have authority over my life and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to live for you and I'm going to be submitted to you. That's the starting point. It's coming to Jesus in prayer, committing yourself to him. Next, it's making your commitment public through baptism. It's not hiding that commitment. It's coming forward with that and saying, I publicly want the church and the world to know I belong to Jesus. And third and finally, join a healthy local church so you can have a support network that loves you and can help you learn to follow Jesus from this day forward. And I just want to say this before we we pray. If there's anyone here today that wants to take any of those steps, maybe the Lord pricked your heart this morning. You're saying, man, I need to come to grips with who Jesus is. I want to take these forward. Please stick around today and talk to any of the amazing and wonderful people here at Apostles Church. Or if you feel more comfortable talking to a pastor, please know that we as pastors would be delighted to talk with you and help you move forward in following Jesus. Let's pray together.